It's Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. Thanks, Jess, for reading that for us this morning. That's where we're going to be. I invite you to open up in God's Word, uh, your copy of God's Word, whether it's an app or a Bible, uh, to Matthew chapter 27, verse 10, or verses 1 through 10. Uh, today we have the first of a two-part sermon uh, called The Crucified King. And appropriately, we're getting into uh, the season of Easter and Good Friday is coming up. I want to invite you to come back to our Good Friday service here. It's going to be truly a worshipful environment. But today I want to talk about uh, part one of the crucified king. We're going to zoom in on these 10 verses in the whole story of Jesus' uh, death, his burial, his resurrection. We want to look today at just these first couple of verses. And um, before we get there, I got a little bragging to do. Um, I'm truly delighted to be with you here today. I was supposed to be with you last week, but my wife and I at like 12.30 in the morning, Sunday morning last week, we brought home our third child from the hospital, uh, Graham Warren Jacobson. Yeah, thank you. It's the little dude. Uh, he looks just like somebody. I don't know who he looks like, actually. Uh, we're so blessed. This is our third kid, so you keep praying for the Jacobsons. It's working because he's been sleeping like all newborns do, which is great. Mom's doing great, too. Just so, so thankful for how God's provided for us in his grace and his blessing. Um, he, uh, Graham is being... Um, adored and just doted on by his big sister. Elin is three and she thinks the world of Graham. At the hospital, she came up to us and gave my wife and I a big hug and said, mommy, daddy, I'm so happy that we have baby Graham in our life. Right? Is that not amazing? Miles, our two-year-old son, was kind of like, what's that thing doing here? <laughs> uh, come around. Um, we named him Graham Warren for a specific reason. And um, I want to tell you that. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the reason that we've named him Graham Warren. And I want you to know the whole entire time I'm telling you why we've named him this. It's not because I want to brag, but I have a spiritual illustration that I'm using here to set us up for where we're going today, okay? It'll all become clear. But um, his name's Graham, and uh, that's a reference to Billy Graham, uh, the, the great preacher. Uh, Billy, you know that Billy Graham's still alive today? He's 98 years old. He's going to be 99 in uh, November. Isn't that amazing? Um, and uh, so we, we've named him uh, Graham after Billy Graham. And the reason we, we, that's close to us is because in 1945, in May, May of 1945, Billy Graham came to Indiana. He came to Indiana Harbor, to the, uh, to the high school there, and uh, preached the gospel to a bunch of high school students that day. And uh, Billy Graham thought it was the biggest failure. He thought it was a, a terrible time. Nothing went right. He left being criticized by all the preachers around here. And... Um, Little did Billy Graham know that that day, May 12, 1945, in attendance that day was my grandfather, Warren. And uh, he was a 16-year-old, 17-year-old boy, was there just to usher this event, thought something cool was going on, so he was going to pass out the tracts or whatever were, were there. He wasn't even a Christian. And heard the gospel, was so cut to the heart that right then and there, May 12, 1945, Billy Graham preaches the gospel. My grandfather, Warren, hears it, responds by faith, feels called to the ministry, and devotes his life to following Jesus' call and preaching the gospel himself. So there you have the passing of faith by preaching uh, from Billy Graham to my grandfather Warren, this Graham Warren. Kind of cool, right? But it doesn't stop there, of course. Wait, 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 there's more. So my grandfather goes to seminary and he meets a woman. Uh, her name is Elizabeth Warren, not the same one. Not the same Elizabeth Warren. We call her Betty. And, and her last name is Warren as well. And they get married. And they have kids. And they teach their kids the gospel. And their kids grow up. And their kids get married. And they have kids. And um, 
My mom becomes a Jacobson when she married my dad, and she had kids, obviously taught her kids the gospel, and uh, that is the story of my faith being passed down to me. So Graham Warren Jacobson is actually a little testimony to the way that God's faith has been present in my life. Put too much thought into it? Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, but rightfully so. Why? Because naming a child, let me get an amen on this, naming a child is the most horrific and pressure-filled situation of your life, right? Dads in this room have been like, what do I call this? I'm going to call you this the rest of your life. And uh, my daughter wanted Olaf. (laughs) Elin and Olaf would have been really good, but no. Kristen and I had amazing names picked out for Graham. We had really trendy names, cool names, names that go really well with our family, and um, we settled on this one. But, but here's the point. Do you know what we didn't name our kid? Judas. See what I'm doing here? It's not the best preaching transition ever. Judas. We didn't name him Judas. Why? Uh, why at no point during this naming process, why are names like Liam and, and Dakota and, and all these, Grace, and why are all these weird names coming up? That's a great name, by the way. But why are all these names coming up and Judas never comes up? Now, not once. Well, obviously, it's because in AD 33, Judas Iscariot commits the act of treason that is heard around the world. Uh, Judas, ironically, back in Jesus' day, was the number two most popular name in in all the land, right behind Simon. And today, kids are still called Simon, but nobody's called Judas. Uh, In 2016, Only three babies out of every million babies that were born was named Judas. Contrast that with the name Liam, which had 11,200 babies per million named Liam. Judas, it's a testimony to the the impact of of the, the cultural implications of Christianity that we don't call anyone Judas anymore. To, To actually call someone a Judas is almost like being cursed at, isn't it? I mean, you'd rather be called in America our own version of being a Benedict Arnold than a Judas, even though the two things mean the same thing. Judas is almost like our equivalent of he who must not be named, right? All throughout history, we've treated Judas really poorly. Um, Dante, in his Divine Comedy, he portrays uh, Judas as occupying the lowest level of hell along with two other traitors, Brutus and Cassius. But but Dante goes out of his way to tell us that they didn't suffer as much as Judas did. Later in the Inferno, uh, Judas is depicted as having his head in the the jowls of Satan himself and his razor-sharp teeth are mashing down on him. Uh, One legend, an Irish legend from from the medieval, medieval ages, it's the legend of St. Bernard, uh, Bernard, the navigator, or St. Brendan, the navigator, I'm sorry. He's an Irishman journeying to the new world, and on his way, he encounters uh, Judas sitting on an island on a rock. St. Brendan is in a boat, and Judas is on a rock on an island in the middle of the ocean, and hail, it's just this one cloud of hail just constantly pouring down on him while simultaneously his insides are bursting with flames of fire. And then St. Brennan finds out that this is not hell for Judas. This is called Sunday. Monday through Saturday, he exists in this molten pile. But on Sunday and holy days, the Lord gives him some reprieve and puts him on this rock. Everybody say, ouch. We don't look kindly upon Judas today. I searched for some uh, 
artist renditions of Judas throughout the Middle Ages and whatnot, and I knew that your kids would be here, and so I'm not going to put them on the screen. They're so graphic. Aside from Judas priests, we don't have any positive references in pop culture today to Judas. And so what do we do with this? This man who is the worst Christian who ever lived. What are we to do with Judas? And I call him the worst Christian who ever lived, and you may take offense to that two ways. You may think that, Dan, that's really harsh of you to say that, but I'm going to stand by that harshness. But then some of you are thinking, a Christian, Judas? Certainly not. And I want to use that phrase, the worst Christian who ever lived, to use it in its literal sense, that Judas was a Christ follower. Make no mistake about it, in the scriptures, Judas was called by Jesus to follow him around Nazareth and Galilee and Judea. Judas was one of the 12 who heard the best sermons in the world, who saw the most magnificent miracles, who watched Jesus do marvels. He would raise the dead and heal the blind and heal the lame, and he would, he would see the most amazing things. Judas himself would have gone out on this mission trip where, where, where Jesus sends out his 72 and he himself would have preached the gospel of the kingdom. He would have healed the lame. He would have cast out the demons. Judas, absolutely a follower of Jesus. But was he saved? Which is a question I want to leave just hanging out there for you and we'll come back to it at the end. See, the worst Christian who ever lived, Matthew gives us his story. And I pray today that you and I would have open ears and hearts and minds to see the example of those in this story, to see their failures, that we might be more inspired to love and worship Jesus as our king. And so this morning, what I want us to do to understand the, the, what Judas, this Judas story is, to understand this betrayal, understand his actions, we got to understand what's happening with those around him. So today, we're just going to look at two characters in this story, the, the characters of the chief priest and the character of Judas, to learn some lessons for us today. And here's why. Because though history treats Judas really poorly, though artists treat Judas really poorly, though songs and, and music treat Judas really poorly, we get to Matthew chapter 27. And you know who doesn't treat Judas really poorly? Matthew. You would expect that a fellow friend and disciple of Jesus, having known that this is the man who betrayed Jesus with a kiss for some coins, and then saw him be crucified, that the blood that is on Judas's hands, that, that this Matthew, as he's recording the story of the ultimate demise of Judas, would have thrown in there a couple jabs at Judas, would have sort of vilified Judas, would have sort of uh, put, put a shade or a layer of, of darkness upon Judas. But you know what we don't find here? Any of that. Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10, Judas actually looks a lot more like you and like me. And there is a stark reality that each one of us needs to think about today as it comes to the life and the death of Judas as we consider how we too follow Jesus ourselves. So, am I all up for studying Judas today? We good? Okay. Matthew 27, verse 1. Let's, let's start here. We awake on that Friday morning. Look at verse 1. All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. 
In these 10 verses, this is the only time that we know what's happening to Jesus. He's standing bound in the courtroom, listening to those who are of the religious party, the religious ruling class, those who are supposed to be his friends and his people. Taking counsel, they're scheming together. There was one agenda item on the docket for that day. It was how do we ensure the total and absolute destruction of this menace, Jesus of Nazareth. So far, the plan had been to capture Jesus when he least expected it. So they turned one of Jesus' inside guys around against him. They bribed him to bring them to Jesus at a time and place that was not public so that they could ensure a forced surrender. The next step was to get the Romans to see how absolutely terrible Jesus was. The Jews hated Jesus. For them, he spoke blasphemy against God. He was claiming to be like God, of God, to be himself God. And that railed against all the monotheistic tendencies of Judaism in this day to say that, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall have no other gods before me. They had no idea how to reconcile the fact that Jesus was here on earth claiming that he was of the Father, God, but that also the God the Father was what they've known for centuries. They, they were so attached to their picture of God that they couldn't see God when he manifested himself in front of them. And so for the Jews that day, that was a blasphemous, terrible thing to say that came with the penalty of death. But for the Romans, they didn't care about the Jewish traditions. They didn't care about Judaism. They had their God, Caesar. And for them, you could do whatever you wanted in Rome as long as you didn't try and go against the rule and the reign of Caesar. And so in this council here in verses 1 and 2, the chief priests and the elders are all conspiring together, thinking maybe we should throw the book at Jesus, see what, see what sticks. And, and all of a sudden, the idea of sedition, that, that Jesus is, is, is trying to undermine the Roman Empire, that's what's going to get the Romans to try and crucify him. Happy with their plan, they're kind of good. They bind up Jesus and they lead him away to Pilate to have a quick, quick trial. But Matthew doesn't take us to the trial right away. Matthew next in verse 3 shows us how wicked the high priests are with Jesus. But he also shows what happened to Judas. But all of this reminds me a little bit, I hope maybe you hear echoes of this too, this plotting, this conspiring, this counseling of of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, it says this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. Counsel. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist who penned these words century before this event imagined foreign enemies coming in from the outside into Israel, into uh, the Jewish nation imposing this unified threat to take down the people of God. And yet, what do we see in Matthew 27? We see the people of God coming together to take counsel themselves, not destruction from the outside in, but from the inside out. Railing against Jesus, railing against the Lord's anointed. What they should have been doing was at the end of Psalm 2 says, this is Psalm 2 verse 12, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. What they should have been doing instead of taking counsel to kill him would be paying homage to him, 
to recognize Jesus as the anointed one of the Lord and to worship him. They would have none of it. And here we see the self-righteous, blinded envy of the religious leaders whom power has corrupted. And then they treat Jesus with absolute derision, but then look at what happens to Judas. We're going to go to verse 4. We'll come back to Judas in a moment. Judas, in response to what happens, he comes back in the temple in remorse in verse 4, and he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I want you to think about what it took for Judas to turn around and go back to the temple. The amount of courage it would have taken for him to go sacrifice this giant sum of money. And yet look at the response from the temple. They say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. What is that to us? See to it yourself. What is that to us? See to it yourself. If ever there was a declaration that so described the longings of our society today, it would be that sentence. What is that to us? You see to it yourself. In our pluralistic, tolerant society, where immorality is justified by the one who commits it, we all cry out in the sins of other people and we say, well, what is that to me, man? That's, that's your problem. No, I don't have to deal with that. That's for you to figure out, right? Is that not the apex of where we're heading as society, for everyone to do what is right in their own eyes? And here we see the religious leaders of all people claiming this hands-off, that's not my problem, you're not going to poison me with your issue. That's on you, man. And what they should have said is much different. I don't know if you grew up as a Catholic or if you have a friend who's a Catholic or a family member that's Catholic or you've watched The Godfather. The Catholic Church practices the rite of confession. You, you know this, right? Confession. And there's a booth that you go to and um, you, can, you can sit on one side of the booth. There's a screen and the, the priest, right, is on the other side. And I'm not going to make you raise your hands. It's okay if you've done this. But um, you say, forgive me, Father, for I have. Good, right. And then what does the priest say? Something like, how have you sinned? Or go on, my child, right? At least that's how it goes in The Godfather. And um, that's when you say, I have sinned by, and then naming your sin, confessing your sin. You go to any, uh, uh, any, any priest today, and you'll walk through this pattern with them in the rite of confession, and at the end of it, here's what they won't say to you. Well, what is that to me, man? You go see to it yourself. See, the priests are the people, even in Judas and Jesus' day, the people that were tasked by God to dispense his mercy. They were the people that were to hear the confession and to offer sacrifices for atonement for the sins. They were the people who were supposed to have a merciful, compassionate heart that were supposed to seek restoration and redemption for the people of Israel. And instead of coming and, and getting the, 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 the process worked out or the sacrificial system started. The priests take their hands off and they say, no mercy here. You're on your own, man. We don't want to redo anything that has to do with Jesus because we want him dead. And how ironic it is that the chief priests are the keeper of the law of the Ten Commandments. And in the midst of their conspiring, they're conspiring to break number six which is thou shalt not murder. 
Finding no relief in the temple, Judas throws the coins on the ground and he departs from the temple. And he goes away. They are singularly, the chief priests are singularly focused on his extinction. And in verse 5, Judas takes his life. And look at what the chief priests do in verse 6. Matthew tells us, But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. Verse 7, So they took counsel. Rally everybody back up again. We solved the problem of Jesus and how we're going to kill him. Now let's solve the problem of how we're going to deal with all this money we just found. Wicked. They say, what do we do with this blood money? Surely it'd be wrong to put it in the temple, which is crazy ironic. But instead they decide to purchase the field that Judas had killed himself in. They make it a cemetery for people who are traveling through Jerusalem and they unexpectedly die. Like, could there be a more pitiful use of money? But they purchase a field using blood money to create a cemetery for strangers. It's in the field of blood that Judas' blood money was used to purchase the field in which his own blood was spilled to atone for the sin that he had committed. The, the, the great irony here is that the Jewish leaders don't refute Judas's claim that Jesus is innocent. They accept the fact that Judas's money is blood money, so why don't they see that they are condemning an innocent man to die? Callous is what they are. Self-righteous. They may not know whether or not Jesus is innocent, but one thing they know for sure, in their own prideful hearts, certainly they are not at fault. Certainly they are trying to defend the honor and the purity of God and his glory and his temple. And certainly they are not guilty. Jesus is guilty and Judas is guilty, but not them. Not once is there a tinge of honest humility before God and one another to say, are we getting this right? And again, ironically, Matthew reassures us in verses 9 and 10 that all of this fulfills the prophetic will of God. Look with me at verse 9. Matthew is kind of an obscure thing to tack onto this, but you'll see why in a second. It says, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of, whom, the price of him on whom a price had been set, in some, set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Friends, isn't it comforting to know in the midst of all of this chaos that's going on here in these 10 verses that the hand of God is still at work among them? And I don't know if you ever feel like in your life that the prideful, powerful, self-righteous ones are just creating a monopoly and, and, a, and, a, and a tyranny for those around us and we live in that and Sometimes we feel that there's injustice in the world that we can do nothing about. And yet how comforting is it to know that in the midst of the Jesus situation, God's hand was still at work, directing the pieces, fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling the scriptures. Jeremiah and Zechariah, they both contain traces of this prophecy. Matthew kind of mashes them together to show that God is in this, working to purchase another field with better blood to atone for the sins that other people have committed. And we're going to get there next week. But for now, I just simply want to acknowledge the rebellion against the king by the Jewish leaders 
who are obstinate and stubborn in their understanding of who Jesus is and who are guilty, even though they think they're innocent. Which is really frightening for you and me today. Because how many people walk their lives through not thinking that they are guilty? Trying to live the moral life, trying to, trying to be good enough, trying to say, I'm good with God. Not recognizing the whole time that all of us are condemned. That all of us are guilty. That no one is innocent. Jesus' crucifixion shows those who feel innocent are actually guilty. And those who feel guilty can't do anything to reclaim their innocence. And that's the story of Judas that I want to turn to right now. Look back with me in verse 3. Are you still with me? Verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he, what's the word there? Changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. The betrayer has this moment of clarity when he realizes Jesus is condemned to die. And we have to ask ourselves this question. Have you ever wondered this? What did Judas think was going to happen? Like, what did he expect? The, the Jewish leaders, uh, for us, for chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, have been plotting to kill Jesus and just waiting for just that right time. But more than that, Jesus himself had been prophesying, I'm going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is going to be handed over to death. You would have thought, like, Judas, man, like, put it together, dude. Like, you're going to betray him and he's going to die. And it takes that moment. After the council with the chief priests, where Judas realizes the full extent of what he has set in motion, and he changes his mind. In the Bible, to change your mind is referred to as repentance. Repentance. It's like this. I'm going this way. I'm walking some way, and I, I'm convicted of the way that I'm walking. I'm convicted of, of what I'm doing, and I know where I'm going. If I keep going down this road, it'll... It'll ruin me. And so you change your mind. You actually literally, you turn around and you walk in the opposite direction. You, you start living out the decision that you made way back there, way back at that point where you were convicted of, of the fact that you were living the wrong way and you move towards freedom. Um, I, I used to live in Chicago and uh, I remember my first days when I was living in the city, I, um, I had a pass that would get me around on the L everywhere I wanted to go. And um, I remember getting lost on the L more times than I wanted to. And I'd want to go up to uh, Wrigley Field, so I'd hop on the red line, but I'd find myself down at Comiskey Park. And, and I, it wasn't until I got to, like, Roosevelt that I'd be on the train going this way, and I'd look, and I'd see the scenery start to change, and this didn't look like Wrigley. This, this doesn't look like anything I'm looking for. And I would, I would repent. I would get off the train, and I would wait for the next train to come in the opposite direction. I would get on that train, and I would start going in the right direction. Friend, that's That's repentance. That's what it looks like to repent, to, to get off the train that's taking you in the wrong direction and get on the one that's going the right direction. And so Judas changes his mind. But sadly, the word Matthew uses here is not the word that we typically find in the original languages to mean he changed his mind in repentance that led him to faith. Instead, this word simply means he changed his mind because he felt remorse. We all know. 
I've had this feeling. I, I think you have too. That conviction that what I've just done is awful because I got caught, right? That, that, that conviction of, not, not of brokenness, but of obstinate pride. And this is what Judas faces here. And Judas does a few things here in his repentance, which I want to call an almost repentance. He does a few things here really right. He does a few things really wrong. And here's what we can admire about this almost repentance. First is that he does change his mind. He repents, he goes back, he tries to find some way to undo his actions. And the second thing he does is that he confesses his sin. He walks into the priest. Imagine the courage it would take him to walk into the priest and say, I've sinned. I have sinned. How many guys I meet with on a regular basis who, who tell me about their, their past, who tell me about the, the things that they've done that they're not proud of, who, who tell me about the skeletons in their closet, who tell me about their issues, who tell me about their, but never would call it sin. And here we see Judas, the worst Christian who ever lived, clearly identifying his actions, saying, I have sinned. He confesses. That means to see your sin the same way God sees it. And then here's the, the, the final thing that I see that he does really well is that he also acknowledges the innocence of Jesus. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. What a powerful testimony of Jesus' character. When the guy who frames you comes back and says, no, 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 guys, I was wrong. I, I had it wrong. Like, like the guy's innocent. That's a, that's, a big test, that's a big character witness right there. But how many people know this? Um, simply acknowledging your sin and the purity of Jesus is not enough in and of themselves. Right, like, like um, I eat terrible food. I, I basically have a Shoop's, like, uh, stock right now. And um, burgers, hot dogs, all this stuff, awful, awful food. Like, my heart, pray for me. Um, but say I were to go out and get a nutritionist, and my nutritionist ate amazing food, kale shakes all day long, and, and, and just, you know, all the stuff that none of us want to eat but we know is good for us, right? Acknowledging that I have a problem, acknowledging that that person does it the right way does not solve my problem, right? Or, or, or guys, um, maybe you've had this moment, and forgive me, I have, where uh, in an argument in your house between you and your spouse, you, um, you say, you realize like you're totally wrong, but the way you say it is not helping your cause, right? You're like, you're right, honey, I'm wrong. Right? Does that help you? No. Just try it. Just try it. And then after I say, Pastor Dan told me to do it, and then immediate grace, okay? Acknowledging you're wrong and acknowledging he's right is actually only half the battle. Friends, listen to this. What, G what Judas does, which is incomplete, and what so many of us do today is that we try and deal with our sins in the wrong way with the wrong people. Judas runs back to the temple to the chief priest thinking he can just give back the money, just undo the deal, just be free from the guilt and possibly he can even purchase his innocence by giving up his sinful reward and save Jesus from condemnation. 
What he should have realized was that Jesus was about to purchase Judas's innocence and Judas's freedom and Judas's condemnation. Judas went to human priests in the temple when he should have gone to Jesus, the great high priest who himself is the temple. See, the only remedy for our sin problem is to run to Jesus and accept him as the king of our lives. Accept his sacrifice for our sins as the only work which will wash away our guilt and shame. You, you can't run to your spouse. You can't run to your parents. and You can't run to your boss. You may need to ask for their forgiveness for sinning against them, but ultimately until you run to Jesus, your repentance is only half-hearted. Instead, what we see from Judas, what he actually does, where he fails here, is that when he doesn't get the response he desired from the chief priests, he lost all hope in himself. He lost all hope in the religious systems, and he lost all hope in Jesus. And so he rid himself of the spoils of his sin, and he departed the temple. He ran to a field where he rid himself of all of his guilt, and he departed this life. The whole time singing that old song, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Judas. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Judas. Judas's mistake is that he thought he could fix his problems himself. And so he had rebelled against the king. He betrayed his loyalty. He exchanged the blessing of friendships for the curse of money. And he forfeited his soul to gain the world. And then just hours later, he commits suicide. Friends, surely suicide is not the unpardonable sin. But it is sin. And Judas, ironically, just like the Elders and the chief priests plot against Jesus and they violate the sixth commandment. Judas takes upon his life upon himself and he himself violates the sixth commandment by killing himself. I don't want to gloss over this because I've talked to too many people in our campus, in our church, at the lowest points of their life. I've been terrified on the phone with some of you. I've prayed so hard for some of you. And I thank God that as far as I've been here, not because of me, but I just thank God he spared you from that. And we live in a society that is so depressed. We live in a world that is so hopeless and all we're trying to do is be like Judas to fix our own problems. And we bear the guilt of what we've done. We bear the weight of our sin and we, it crushes you. You can't sleep at night. You can't think. It's affecting your job. It's affecting your relationships. It's affected your whole world. And the enemy creeps in to that moment and just whispers in your ear and says, it's not worth it anyway. All hope is gone. You should just depart this life. Had Judas waited three days, four days, 
Would not the risen, resurrected Jesus gone and sought him out and wrapped his pierced hands around his flesh and given him a big hug and said, I forgive you. This is what our Jesus always does. His grace always seeks out the hopeless. His blood bleeds for those who have betrayed him. He died not for those who like him, but for those who are enemies against him. And if Judas would have recognized that Christ is the solution, not himself being the solution, that sacrifice and repentance towards Jesus as opposed to taking matters in his own hand, that life would have come around to hope, that God's hope would have sought him out. How much different would we be talking about him today? We would not be saying, hey, Judas is the worst name ever. Jesus is the worst guy. We would hate him. He's, he must not be named. No, we'd be saying, isn't it amazing that God's grace reaches as far as to save Judas? But friends, here's the sad reality. Judas is not in heaven because he sought the wrong atonement. He did all the right things. He messed up one time and it crushed him because his hope was in someone else. It was in himself. The sad reality of Judas' death is that in every way it is the anti-glory of Jesus' glorious death. Judas' death, it's pitiful in comparison to the death of Jesus. Both are hung on a tree, but Judas puts himself there by his own sin, while Jesus is put there by the sins of other people. Judas' death is out of agony over his own sin, while Jesus' death is out of God's agony and wrath for the sins of the world. Judas's death, it purchased a cemetery for strangers where Jesus' death purchased eternal life and a new family for the world. Judas, because of his blood, created a field which was purchased with his blood money, but Jesus, with his precious blood, purchased the field which the Bible calls a metaphor for the world. And Judas hung on a tree and has a name that is reviled across the world and despised in hell. But Paul says about Jesus, Philippians 2, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In every way, the death of Judas is tragic compared to the death of Jesus but we see here so tragic is it that Judas would not go to Jesus for his sins. And friends, that is exactly where you and I are today. Where do you go when you mess up? Have you gone to the only one who can give you that fresh start? Or do you, like Judas, feel hopeless in what you've done? Feel trapped by this world? Feel just totally stuck and there's no way out? Maybe for you, the lesson from Judas is that if you wait, hang on. Hope is coming to those who seek it. I know this because just verses before Judas hangs himself, one of the other disciples in Jesus' clan, Peter, he also betrays Jesus. He denies him three times outside the court. And afterwards, 
Peter goes to Jesus and Jesus comes to him and he restores him so beautifully at the end of the Gospel of John. Whereas Judas could not find the atonement for his sins, Peter found Jesus atoned for his sins. Peter went to Jesus when Judas went to the priests. As Judas shed tears of remorse, Peter shed tears of repentance and trusted in Jesus for his salvation. When he went to Jesus, he was restored by Jesus. And maybe that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly grief produce, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas' life and his death was one lived out in remorse, feeling sorry for himself, doing something bad, thinking that feeling bad for what he had done would get him freedom. Like when I was, I was a little kid and... Um, my, my parents would uh, discipline me, and I learned. If I felt really bad about what I had done, they would kind of like spare the rod, so to speak. And so I, I learned really quickly like to let them know, Mom, Dad, I feel bad about it. Isn't that enough? Obviously it's not, right? But how many of us trap ourselves with guilt, thinking that if I feel bad enough about who I am, somehow that'll pay for my sin? And it fails to realize the fact that Jesus paid it all. See, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? There's no thing but the blood of Jesus. And his blood is what we're going to talk about next week. I hope you come back to hear part two of this message. We love you. That's all for today. Go in God's grace.